Hello and welcome back to Miss Macintosh. Oh, sorry. Volume 3 of To All My Darlings, where we're looking at Miss Macintosh, My Darling. And I'm trying to figure out where to put that. I am back from a wonderful weekend. I just had a fantastic weekend. It was so much fun. And I'm trying this, um, which I'd seen before, where it's a Vietnamese coffee, where you put an egg yolk in the coffee blend it and put it in the coffee it is delicious so that might be my new way of drinking coffee well one of my coffees it is decaf though so i'm not you know, like i have a little bit of caffeine and then i switch over to decaf so <sighs> otherwise i'd be bouncing off the walls okay we are going on with volume three we're looking at all the philosophy that i feel uh, I found some kind of connection. Either Young mentioned it, or I found some kind of connection to Miss Macintosh, my darling. And the next one we're looking at is St. Augustine. St. Augustine followed the synthesis of the philosophy of Plato with Christian theology. He saw the human being as a perfect unity of soul and body. He exhorted respect for the body on the grounds that belonged to the very nature of the human person. Augustine's favorite way to describe body-soul unity is marriage, or your body is your wife. There's a lot of that marriage in the book. Augustine describes body and soul as two elements in perfect harmony. After, fall, after the fall of humanity, they are now experiencing dramatic combat between one another. They are two categorically different things. The body is a three-dimensional object composed of the four elements, whereas the soul has no spatial dimensions. Soul is a kind of substance participating in reason, fit for ruling the body. St. Augustine said to be a human is to be a composite of a soul and body with a soul superior to the body. The latter statement is grounded in his hierarchical classification of things into those that merely exist, those that exist and live, and those that exist, live, and have intelligence or reason. Descartes', uh, Descartes philosophy will be discussed in another part. Augustine praises women and their role in society and in the church and is tracked Tates on the Gospel of John, Augustine commenting on the Samaritan woman from John 4, 1-42, uses the woman as a figure of the church in agreement with the New Testament, teaching that the church is the bride of Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like other church fathers, Augustine vigorously condemned the practice of induced abortion. Oh, this coffee's so good. And although he disapproved, it makes any... Ooh, crappy decaf coffee. It makes any coffee taste better, just creamier, just richer. Sorry. This is the first time I tried it. Um, and although he disapproved of an abortion during any stage of pregnancy, he made a distinction between early and later abortions. He acknowledged the distinction between formed and unformed fetuses. There you go, Catholics. His view was based on the Aristotelian distinction between the fetus before and after its supposed vivification. Therefore, he did not classify as murder the abortion of an unformed fetus, since he thought it could not be known with certainty the fetus had received a soul. Augustine held that the timing of the infusion of the soul was a mystery known to God alone. However, he considered procreation as one of the goods of marriage. Abortion figured as a means, along with drugs, that cost sterility of frustrating this good. It lay along a continuum that included infanticide as an instance of lustful cruelty or cruel lust. Augustine called the use of means to avoid the birth of a child an evil force, oh, an evil work, a reference to either abortion or contraception or both.
I'm including all of this because all of this is inside Miss McIntosh, my darling. And she said Augustine's and especially the city of God was an influence on her, which you can kind of, I can kind of tell as far as reading it between the body and soul, uh, being married, uh, the marriage of body and soul, um, and the way Mr. Spitzer questions things. Um, epistemological concerns shaped Augustine's intellectual development. The doctrine of illumination claims God plays an active and regular part in human perception and understanding by illuminating the mind so human beings can recognize intelligible realities God presents. According to Augustine, illumination is obtainable to all rational minds and is different from other forms of sense perception. It is meant to be an explanation of the conditions required for the mind to have a connection with intelligible entities. Catholic theologians generally subscribe to Augustine's belief that God exists outside of time in the eternal present. That's also in the book. And we'll be looking at time, space, existence. We'll be looking at all those words that are in the book. That time only exists within the created universe because only in space is time discernible through motion and change. His meditations on the nature of time are closely linked to his consideration of the human ability of memory. Augustine writes of walking up a flight of stairs and entering the vast fields of memory. Memory is a big part, and we'll be looking at that, too, in the book. Augustine's philosophical method had a continuing influence on continental philosophy through the 20th century. His descriptive approach to intentionality, memory, and language as these phenomena are experienced within consciousness and time anticipated and inspired the insights of modern phenomenology and hermeneutics. Jean Beth Elstein and Augustine and the Limits of Politics tried to associate Augustine with Arndt and their con concept of evil. Augustine did not see evil as glamorously demonic, but rather as absence of good, something which paradoxically is really nothing. Arndt envisioned even the extreme evil which produced the Holocaust as merely banal. Um, that's just on St. Augustine, then also uh, to look specifically at the City of God, which Young referenced specifically. The City of God is a book by Christian philosophy written by St. Augustine of Hippo. The book was in response to allegations that Christianity brought about the decline of Rome and is considered one of Augustine's most important works. The City of God is a cornerstone of Western thought, expounding on many profound questions of theology, such as the suffering of the righteous, the existence of evil, the conflict between free will and divine omniscience, and the doctrine of original sin. So this free will and divine omniscience, I think, is something else that's, uh, that's playing out in Ms. McIntosh, my darling. Um, and she has said that, I guess, Miss McIntosh herself was examining the conflict between paganism and Christianity. So let's look at some of the history. The sack of Rome by the Visigoths in 410 left Romans, whoops, left Romans in a deep state of shock. And many Romans saw it as punishment for abandoning traditional Roman religion in favor of Christianity. In response to these accusations, and in order to console Christians, Augustine wrote the City of God as an argument for the truth of Christianity over competing religions and philosophies. He argues that Christianity was not responsible for the sack of Rome, but instead responsible for Rome's success. Even if the earthly rule of the empire was imperiled, it was the City of God that would ultimately triumph. So never mind about things here on earth. It's things after that come after. So that's really important to know with Miss McIntosh. Like this idea that the things, life is not working out for her here. So don't worry about that. You have the afterlife, which is that consolation for the poor that 
cut and there was a marks which i tried finding i found it and then lost it which was like a reworking of marx's um uh religion is the, the what is it i can't remember the exact quote religion is the opium of the masses um Augustine's focus was heaven. Christianity, he argued, should be concerned with the mystical heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, rather than the earthly politics. The book represents human history as a conflict between what Augustine calls the earthly city, sometimes referred to the city of man and city of God, a conflict that is destined to end in victory for the latter. The city of God is marked by people who forego earthly pleasure to dedicate themselves to the eternal truths of God, now revealed fully in the Christian faith. The earthly city, on the other hand, consists of people who have immersed themselves in the cares and pleasures of the present passing world. That would be Perón Spitzer. Um, who else does that? I think he's the one who symbolizes that. Although he's dead at the time. Well, supposedly dead at the time. So that you're not... You're getting it as um, backstory rather than something current. Kinda, since Joaquin at the end admits to being Perón. Um, Augustine's thesis depicts the history of the world as universal warfare between good God and the devil. This metaphysical war is not limited by time, but only by geography on earth. In this war, God moves those governments, political ideological movements, and military forces aligned with the Catholic Church or the city of God in order to oppose, by all means, those governments, political ideological movements, and military forces aligned with the devil or the city of the world. This concept of world history guided by divine providence and a universal war between God and the devil is part of the official doctrine of the Catholic Church. Highlights from the book are, one, explains good and bad things that happen to righteous and wicked people alike, and it consoles the women violated in the recent calamity. We talked about that in the uh, section on rape. Two, because of the worship of the pagan gods, Rome suffered the greatest calamity of all, that is moral corruption. Three, pagan gods failed to save Rome numerous times in the past from worldly disasters such as the sack of Rome by the Gauls. Four, the power and long duration of the Roman Empire was due not to the pagan gods, but to the Christian god. Five, refutation of the doctrine of fate and explanation of the Christian doctrine of free will and its consistency with God's omniscience. Six, a refutation of the assertion that the pagan gods are to be worshipped for eternal life. Seven, a demonstration that eternal life is not granted by Roman gods. Eight, an argument against the Platonists and their natural theology, which Augustine views as the closest approximation of Christian truth, and a refutation of Apuleius' insistence on the worship of demons as mediators between God and man. Oh, cool. The book also contains a refutation against Hermeticism. Shit, what's Hermeticism? I don't know. Hold on. Okay, Hermeticism is based primarily on the teachings of Hermes, a legendary Hellenistic combination of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth. These teachings are contained in the various writings. Da, 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 da. Okay, what is it? One of those common. A religio philosophical system propounded by a specific subgroup of Hermetic writings known as the Philosophical Hermetica, the most famous of which is the Corpus Hermeticum. Okay, what is, so what is, what is it about? Okay, so it's a type of philosophy. 
associated with Hermes alchemy. Oh, so good. Like I guess like a type of magic maybe. Astrological, alchemical, magical, such as the Emerald Tablet. Hmm. A uh, throughout its history, Hermeticism was closely associated with the idea of a primeval divine wisdom revealed only to the most ancient of sages, sages such as Hermes. In the Renaissance, this developed into the notion of Prisica theologia, ancient theology, which asserted that there is a single true theology which is given by God to some of the first humans and traces of which may still be found in various ancient systems of thought. Huh. So it's like an ancient ancient theology. Zor, so okay, Zoroaster, Pythagoras, Plato, Kabbalah. So even though it was associated with early Christianity, that broke up. These doctrines were characterized by resistance to the dominance of either pure rationality or doctrinal faith. I guess it's about doing a middle way. And the caduceus, which is known for the medical, the intertwining for medicine symbol, that's associated with Hermes. Okay, well, there's a crap ton, crap ton of stuff, so I can't sum it up too much other than what I said. Nine, a proof that all demons are evil and that only Christ can provide man with eternal happiness. Ten, a teaching that the good angels wish that God alone is worshipped and a proof that no sacrifice can lead to purification except that of Christ. Eleven, the origins of the two cities, city of God and the earthly city, from the separation of the good and bad angels and a detailed analysis of Genesis 1. Twelve, the answers as to why some angels are good and others bad and a close examination of the creation of man. Thirteen, teaching that death originated as a penalty for Adam's sin, the fall of man. 14 teaches on the original sin as a cause for future lust and shame as a just punishment for lust. 15. The history of progress of the two cities, including foundational theological principles about Jews. 16. An analysis of the events in Genesis between the time of Cain and Cain and Abel to the time of the flood. 17. The progress of the two cities from Noah to Abraham and the progress of the heavenly city from Aram to the kings of Israel. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. 22. The eternal punishment for the city of the devil. And 23. This last one. The eternal happiness for the saints and explanations of the resurrection of the body. And attributes the character of Miss McIntosh to living by these Christian standards. And the whole book appears to be a question of why someone who lives by these standards still could not find happiness and instead... Sorry, I'm having to make some corrections. Still, I'm going to say could instead of that. Could not find happiness and instead chose suicide. The answer appears to be with Plato and the necessity for the pagan idea of love. Is this Christian philosophy valid if it cannot save a person from reality? That's my question. So is this Christian, does this whole Christian philosophy valid if it cannot save a person from reality? Yeah, I like the pagan idea of love better. Just my take on it. Okay. So.
so Aristotle. Truth resides in the world around us. We find the truth from evidence gained in the world around us. Aristotle broke with Plato and questioned his ideal in forms with the third man argument. If there exists in a realm of forms a perfect form of man on which earthly men are molded, this form, to have any conceivable content, would have to be based on a form of the form of man, and this too would be to this too would have to be based on a higher form, and this would continue to infinity. The use of mirrors in Ms. McIntosh, my darling, may represent this infinity model. Aristotle used the senses as a way to gain understanding from the natural world around him. Many characters, including Ms. McIntosh, engage in this listing of knowledge from different fields to make sense of the world around them. The result seems to be that knowledge from the senses is in itself not enough. So I mean, she's not going wholly with the rational reality part, and she's not going with the Christian faith part but more of, signified by the Middle West, the A Middle Way. There are, as a result, many blind, deaf, and mute people, people who have lost one or more of their senses, yet still have knowledge in the novel. Aristotle started a debate which led to empiricists and rationalists which reached its zenith in Descartes. It is important to note that Thomas Aquinas leaned on Aristotle to form a Christian philosophy in the way that St. Augustine leaned on Plato. Young specifically mentioned St. Augustine and not Aquinas as an inspiration for the book. Therefore, I did not go to Aquinas. Epicurus, death is nothing to us. I think this is a really good key for all the appearances of death in the book. Death, so Epicurus stated, death is nothing to us. If we can overcome the fear of death, we can be happy. So in this sense, in a way, I think that's what Young meant when she said not to, not to take the suicides too seriously. <laughs> was It's trying to overcome this fear of death. And that if you can face death and the reality of death, and she very much hammers that home in the book, then by chance, you might be, you could be happy. Maybe you could be happy. Epicurus reasoned that fear of death keeps people from enjoying the peace of a tranquil mind. This fear is increased by the religious belief that if you incur the wrath of the gods, punishment in the afterlife will follow. He does not suggest another state of immortality, but proposes that when we die, we are unaware of our death, since our consciousness, our soul, ceases to exist at the point of death. If a person is unable to feel anything, mentally or physically, upon death, it is foolish to let the fear of death cause you pain while you are still alive. Dead is used over 1,600 times in Miss McIntosh, my darling. And I think that, that um, she's very much, when we die, when you're gone, you're gone. That's a, that's a point that she hammered home in two um, places in the book very hard. And she also says, how do you know when you're dead? Like, there's no way to know. You wouldn't even know if you're dead. If I drop dead right now, I could still continue talking about this podcast. I mean, in my mind, I could still just keep going. I wouldn't realize it. And so she very much, I think, is trying to, to say that this fear of death is not, is not helpful. And you might be able to be happy if you didn't have this. Um, dead is used over 1,600 times in Miss McIntosh, My Darling. It is, referenced in, it is used in reference to dead children and people or in senses that are dead or dead specific parts of a person, selves, heart, face. The dead have pulsings, souls of the dead, the living and the dead. Characters in the book claim they are really dead, especially Mr. Spitzer. And there is this sense of every minute you're born, you're, you're, as soon as you're born, you're dying. 
every minute that you're alive is also another minute that you're dying. Um, um, characters in the book, yeah. Death is also used over a thousand times. Characters and people are born into death. The world is a living death. Bring, birth brings death. They're paired together in different ways throughout the novel. So like this death is just as common as life. Um, some form of dead and death appear in every chapter. Dying is used slightly less, over 300 times. Again, it is paired with birth, and everything from the little to the greatest is dying. The beginning as the end, and the end is the beginning. And so I really feel this is what ties all of that together in the novel, is this epicurious notion of death is nothing to us. It means nothing to us. If we can overcome the fear of death, we can be happy. Avicenna, the soul is distinct from the body. Avicenna predates Descartes in trying to demonstrate that the mind or self exists because it knows it exists and that it is distinct from the human body. The self is completely distinct from the body and it must be immortal. And so I'm putting Avicenna in here because he's a precursor to Descartes, which it does seem to come later. It seems to be a big part of a... Yeah. Maybe we'll get... And we'll probably get there. So, a uh, precursor to Descartes, that's what I'm trying to say. So, soul. Uh, the word soul is used over 250 times in the novel. Soul is the incorporeal essence of a living being. There was now no landscape but the souls, and that it is the inexactitude, the ever-shifting, the distant. Every soul is the other soul, no soul which answered mine, like deep calling to deep. Souls are lost and dead. The soul should not dream of those things far distant and not to be realized. Read aloud from a book good for the growing soul, such as Pilgrim's Progress. Which Pilgrim's Progress really does have those different cities and this whole quest journey to try and reach the city of God, basically. Never to flee from the heart of life, always to live in the service of others, to know no soul but the soul of man. No heart but the other heart, no self-protection, all souls as equals, all men as brothers and alike. Vera, I would be merged into that charmed life, the familiar community of souls, all souls equal and alike. Because of her yearnings for a beautiful domestic life and for only the simplest things imaginable. Marriage, the union, of unity, the union of body and soul. Children, chickens, a little farm with a vine-covered gate. Through the thin partition between soul and soul. So I find this very interesting that Young um, is writing about all the, all the major aspects of that could be experienced in a woman's life. Um, she's writing about a character who's journeying through life, trying to find the big questions, the big answers to the questions of truth, life, love. Um, how do I live? How, what is this, this you know, uh, coming-of-age story quest that I'm on? In light of the fact that Young never got married, because she thought working on this book was so important that it trumped everything, uh, even though she says very clearly that she had lovers, maybe even long-term lovers. Uh, we don't know. There's just not a lot known about her personal life, um, just from the couple of things she said. So this, and never had children. So uh, she's writing about a character whose main quest is to find perfect love, truth, marriage, children, a happy union, written by a person who never did any of that, <laughs> as far as we know. So I just find that incredibly interesting that that's the message of the book from the author who did not do those things. Um, 
there is the talk of the dark night of the human soul. There had been no marriage of body and soul, and there was no way to prove that she was married. It had not been a marriage of true souls. Maybe marriage came always only with these mortal complications, never saved the soul who was already lost, never solved one's problems as one thought it should, and you were always married in this fog. And she was very critical of marriage, and so she's very critical of this union of body and soul. And almost everybody, every other example in the book points to there not being this union of body and soul through marriage, that marriage was a lottery and that it was almost impossible to find your true love. Like that was, like it was a one in a million shot in the dark. That's the way it was, it's depicted in the novel. Um, and you were always married in this fog, not knowing who you were or who the other person was, and in this fog you died. Wow. Uh, marriage parts us, it divorces our souls from our bodies, and you are left alone sometimes when you are, when you are young, sometimes in your old age. There were always, it seemed, two conflicting motives in her mind, and she was always confused by these considerations, which should have worked for harmony for the union of souls. You know very well that the soul always does triumph over the body, the preacher said when he married us. They say you are born again, body and soul and spirit, and you have a different face, and your old sins are forgotten, washed away. I guess that's an example of what happens uh, for a Christian death. Sorry, I've got to finish this delicious coffee. And as soon as this podcast is over, I'm going to make myself another cup of this with another egg in it. Oh, it was so good. Like, I didn't realize it would be this good. But I will say, you have to make sure and have absolutely no whites. It has to be the egg yolk. Otherwise, the hot coffee will cook the white and you will be chewing some of your coffee. Which actually isn't a bad thing, so I'm not like opposed to it. But I will be more careful to try and strain the the white side of the yolk. But if it's just a couple of little bits that I just got at the end, not a problem. Um, she talks about uh, her Catherine's carriage. Oh, see, I didn't do this. I was a little lazy here. So Catherine, her body was the carriage and her soul. Now it seemed was the passenger and her horses were her will and the coachman was her conscience. But who was this passenger in her carriage? She would surely ask and who had taken her place. The world, Mr. Spitzer believed, was a woman's world from the beginning. It was not man's. Man was necessarily the alien here, the lost soul. I'm assuming she, he's going back to those mysteries when women, no, women, uh, no one knew quite knew how women got pregnant, and so they were thinking they were pregnant from the wind, from spirit, from different ways, and so I think that's where Mr. Spitzer's coming from as far as the pagan world, where woman is the beginning, man is the alien. Um, it was easier to clothe the body than the soul. Man is a little soul carrying around a heavy corpse. She was only as she seemed to no know other soul but hers, and sometimes it seems as if her soul were not her own. Sometimes she doubted that there was a soul. I'm sorry, I was pretty lazy in this one uh, before, uh, especially in, in the love one. I tried to put the person's character's name next to what was being said. I was lazy and didn't do it in this one, and I'm not going back and fixing it, so we're done. So for the ones I absolutely know about, like that one with Catherine. Mr. Spitzer himself, a soul divided and at loss, was in no position to judge another's dreams or visions. All souls should be equal when all of them were dead. 
According to the Greek, the butterfly was psyche, the world which signified the human soul or mind or mental life, the human spirit. Who could call his soul his own, defining the misty boundaries between his soul and another's limitless soul, his dreams and another's universal dreams? Okay, and it keeps going on and on and on. Because a lot of the stuff with the soul I thought was pretty powerful. The waters, the last one is the waters have drowned. The stream has gone over our soul. So again, this water, this is a watery world. Alexa, cancel. This is a watery world. Okay, so the next one is Rene Descartes. I think, therefore I am. I am thinking, therefore I exist. Let me see if I have time for this. Yes, okay. Descartes attempted to arrive at a fundamental set of principles that one can know is true without any doubt. Descartes arrived at a single first principle that he thinks. This is expressed in the phrase, I think, therefore I am. Descartes included, in, if he doubted, then something or someone must be doing the doubting. Therefore, the very fact that he doubted proved his existence. The simple meaning of the phrase is that if one is skeptical of existence, that is in and of itself proof that he does exist. These two first principles, I think and I exist, were later confirmed by Descartes' clear and distinct perception. As he clearly and distinctly perceives these two principles, Descartes reasoned, ensures their indubitability. Descartes concluded that he can be certain that he exists because he thinks, but in what form? He perceives his body through the use of the senses, however, these have previously been unreliable. So Descartes determines that the only indubitable knowledge is that he is a thinking thing. Thinking is what he does, and his power must come from his essence. Descartes defines thought as what happens to me such that I am immediately conscious of it, insofar as I am conscious of it. Thinking is thus very as thinking is thus every activity of a person of which the person is immediately conscious. He gave reasons for thinking that waking thoughts are indistinguishable from dreams and that one's mind cannot have been hijacked by an evil demon placed in an illusory external world before one's senses. Oh, because, what is it? I dreamed something that I thought, it was just last night. I dreamed and I woke up and I'm like, did that really happen? I totally had that dream last night. I can't remember what it was. But I dreamed waking like, was I, did that really happen? Did I dream about something that like really happened or was it just in a dream? So yeah, okay, been there. And this, since dream is in the book a lot, um, and I think she references Descartes a lot, whether, whether explicitly, she ever explicitly stated it. In this manner, Descartes proceeds to construct a system of knowledge, discarding perception as an unreliable, instead admitting only deduction as a method. And perception is questioned in the book. Descartes questioned how people can be sure of the existence of anything at all. The world as it is known could be an illusion. This is totally in the book. The senses cannot be trusted since they have deceived people at one time or another, and they cannot give a firm foundation for knowledge. Therefore, a lot of people in the book are missing senses. He wonders if we are all dreaming and the world is no more than a dream world. He assumes this is possible because there are no sure signs that he is awake or asleep. Hello, Bengals. My pretty baby. Is asleep, so he can't bother you right now. I would. You want to go outside, don't you? All right. Well, since I have to bring in the other one. Okay, so we're going to do a little animal trade out the front door. No, no, come on, come on, come on, come on. I don't have time for you. Come on, here we go. Come on, Bengals. 
There we go, good girl. You go inside. And the great animal swap has happened. Okay. Oh, you go back. Come on. Good gracious. No, you're going to knock that off of there. Oh, baby boy, just go back to sleep. Take a nap. might not in fact be true because God, who is all-powerful, could deceive us even at this level. Even though people believe God is good, it is possible that he made us in such a way that we are prone to errors in our reasoning. Or perhaps there is no God, in which case we are even more likely to be imperfect beings that are capable of being deceived at all the time. This line of questioning puts people into an impossible situation where people cannot even begin to journey back to knowledge and truth. And that, there's definitely that questioning in the, uh, in the book. There is one belief that cannot be doubted by thinking, if I am, I exist. If one can say, if one can think or say it, one cannot be wrong about it. The realization that I exist is a direct intuition, not the conclusion of an argument. St. Augustine used a similar argument in the City of God, for if I am mistaken, I exist. If he did not exist, he could not be mistaken. Descartes, with the certainty of his own existence, saves himself from endless doubt. It gives him a firm foothold and so allows him to start on the journey back from skepticism to knowledge. It is crucial to his, this, his project of inquiry, but it is not the foundation of his epistemology. Doubting is a kind of thinking, so to doubt that I am thinking is to be thinking. Descartes now knows that he exists and that he is thinking, that he and every other person also knows that he is a thinking thing. The flip side of this is that I exist has no content. As it merely refers to its subject, but says nothing meaningful or important about it. It is simply pointing at the subject. Descartes only meant that there is a self for him to point to. It merely offers an escape from endless doubt. Mr. Spitzer embodies this endless doubt, and when he does reach for escape, he is always a fraction too late. His character is reminded of his character. Sorry, oh shoot, I worded this wrong and I need to fix it. I'll just... Okay, his character reminds one of Hamlet from William Shakespeare, Shakespeare's play. Hamlet. He seems to be constantly trying to answer the question, to be or not to be, that is the question. With Descartes and Hamlet, Hamlet thought a great deal, but it is also clear that he did not exist, so it is not true that anything that thinks exists. He thought in the fictional world of a play, but he also existed in that fictional world. Insofar as he did not exist, he did not exist in the real world. His reality and thinking are linked to the same world. The answer to this dilemma lies in the first-person nature and the reasons for Descartes to use the I throughout, because while I might be unsure whether Hamlet was thinking and therefore existed, 
in a fictional world or the real, real world, I cannot be unsure about myself. Descartes also proposed that the mind and the body are two distinct substances. One is material, the body, the other is immaterial, the mind, and they are capable of interaction. This is Cartesian dualism. Descartes' main influences for dualism were theology and physics. The theory of the dualism of mind and body is Descartes' signature doctrine and permeates other theories he advanced, known as Cartesian dualism or mind-body dualism. His theory on the separation between the mind and the body went on to influence subsequent Western philosophies. Descartes' dualism, mind and matter, implied a concept of human beings. A human was, according to Descartes, a composite entity of mind and body. Descartes gave priority to the mind and argued that the mind could exist without the body, but the body could not exist without the mind. Descartes even argues that while the mind is a substance, the body is composed only of accidents. But he did argue that mind and body are closely joined. An anthropocentric revolution. In an anthropocentric revolution, the human being is now raised to the level of a subject, an agent, an agent, an emancipated being equipped with autonomous reason. This was a revolutionary step that established the basis of moderni modernity, the repercussions of which are still being felt. The emancipation of humanity from Christian revelation, truth, revelational truth and the church doctrine. Humanity making its own law and taking its own stand. In, modern, in modernity, the guarantee Guarantor of truth is not God anymore, but human beings, each of whom is a self each of whom is a self-conscious shaper and guarantor of their own reality. In that way, each person is turned into a reasoning adult, a subject, an agent, as opposed to a child obedient to God. One of Descartes' most enduring legacies was his development of Cartesian or analytical analytic geometry which uses algebra to describe geometry. Descartes inverted... Descartes inverted... This is the last part of it. Descartes invented the convention of representing unknowns and equations by X, Y, and Z and knowns by A, B, and C. He also pioneered the standard notation that uses superscripts to show the powers or exponents. He was first to assign a fundamental place for algebra in the system of knowledge, using it as a method to automate or mechanize reasoning, particularly about abstract unknown quantities. And there you have it. We are going to stop there because we get into dream. Oh, I just have uh, dream. Okay, I'll just... No, we'll go on. Dream, dream is used over 1,500 times. Dreams are images that a person's mind creates while they sleep, and the novel is used while people are awake and to explain their whole life as a dream. Characters like Catherine and Homer are forever in a dream. Characters like ah, Catherine and Homer are forever in a dream or dreaming. Vera describes herself as the dreaming savage. Ms. McIntosh does not trust dreams and even history since it is based on dreams, even though all these facts she memorizes or has is teaching Vera to memorize the dream is always the lie Mr. Spitzer cannot tell the difference between the reality and the dream God is also described as dreaming everything dreams there is very little if any separation between dream and reality or the character for the characters except Miss McIntosh Mr. Spitzer hears cousin Hannah's wild dreams when she's on her deathbed the dream dreamed by another dreamer
Sleep is dreamless. Dreams only happen as the dreamer starts to awaken. Mr. Spitzer does not think he has does not think he has ever been awake and travels from dream to dream. This world is the dream of the dream. People live and die by the dreams of others. Hmm, yeah. Mr. Spitzer thinks all dreamers dreamed the same dreams, dream informing all dreamers and all dreams, one great dreamer dreaming through us. Esther wonders why dream when it is already real. Esther has a dreaming mind. Joel Goldberg impregnates Esther since the world was his dream fading from his eyes. Their child is dreamless. Joe seems like a dream to Esther. The men who impregnate Esther are dreaming. Esther is often pregnant with a dream of a child. Old Doc says life is a dream. To Esther's father all seem like a dream, but to Esther's mother she must bear the dream. That's a cool distinction. Esther was always pregnant with her dreams. Vera realizes at the end that she needs to face that reality which had been a dream and which had crumbled perhaps into reality, perhaps into a dream, if nothing was real. After Catherine's death, Vera wonders if her mother only dreams through Vera now. Vera says whatever is average is the dream. Vera had to part with her mind like God in order to dream with God's mind. It took the stone-deaf man that Vera, marry, that Vera married a long time to learn to dream. Okay, the next we are going to talk about reality. Okay, hopefully Anchor is being a real asshole and not giving me a hard time trying to save my program, so, my podcast, so. I'm still going to stick with it. All right. Um, Yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.